I'm Jim Cuno, president of the J. Paul Getty Trust. Welcome to Art and Ideas, a podcast in which I speak to artists, conservators, authors, and scholars about their work. When we unpacked the pictures from Siena and they rejoined their, their siblings, if you will, in the studio, it was really a moving uh, moment. In this episode, I speak with Yvonne Safran, Brian Keane, and Davide Gasparato about the Renaissance artist Giovanni Di Paolo. The great Renaissance artist Giovanni Di Paolo is the focus of an exhibition on view at the Getty Center through January 8, 2017. Titled The Shimmer of Gold, Giovanni Di Paolo in Renaissance Siena, the exhibition presents several panels from one of Giovanni's most important commissions, an altarpiece for the Branchini family chapel in the Church of San Domenico in Siena. The central panel of this altarpiece is a stunning Madonna and Child in the collection of the Norton Simon Museum, which has been reunited with four of the five smaller panels that form the predella below it. This is exciting because these paintings haven't been presented together since they were dispersed several centuries ago. The exhibition also includes a handful of illuminated manuscripts and other paintings by Giovanni and his close collaborators and contemporaries. The altarpiece has been the subject of an important conservation study by curators and conservators at the Getty Museum as part of a partnership with the Norton Simon Museum and the Kroller-Muller Museum in Otterlo, the Netherlands. Joining me today in the galleries are three Getty Museum colleagues who were deeply involved in this project, Yvonne Safran, senior painting conservator, Davide Gasparato, senior curator of paintings, and Brian Keane, assistant curator of manuscripts. We will discuss why Giovanni is considered to be one of the most distinctive and imaginative artists working in Siena during the Renaissance, and what the conservation study has revealed about the materials and optical effects that Giovanni deployed to create these marvelous works. I started by asking Davide to tell us a little bit about the artist. Uh, Giovanni Di Paolo is uh, today recognized really as one of the most important painters active in Siena. Uh, for uh, in the 15th century. In the 15th century, actually, he had a very long career. He was uh, probably born at the very end of the 14th century. So he um, was uh, studying. His training was in the beginning, really, of the 15th century. Was he born in Siena, or did he come to Siena? No, he was born in Siena. Yeah, and his training he, was in Siena. He was his training was in Siena. He was for sure trained as uh, an, an illuminator and as a painter. Actually, his first documented work are illuminations and not paintings. Uh, what did it mean to be trained in Siena? How did that take place, that training? Uh, we, we, we really don't know how he was trained and by who, but uh, Siena at the beginning of the 15th century was again, as it was at the beginning of the previous century, a very important and vibrant, I would say, artistic center. And because of, uh, com- of the commission from the church, but also from the comune, so from the city, and in, in, so it's, um, he was raised in a moment in which the art of Siena is uh, um, looking back at his, uh, its great tradition, the tradition of the 14th century, especially of painters like Duccio, Simone Martini, the greatest painters from Siena at the beginning of the 15th century, but was also looking to contemporary developments, especially in Florence, and several important artists from Florence, like the famous sculptor Lorenzo Ghiberti, worked for Siena, Mm -hmm. uh, and also uh, 
foreign painters like Gentile da Fabriano, who was a painter coming from the Marche region, but then he was he traveled widely in Italy. He was probably the most eminent and famous painter in Italy at the time, went to Siena to paint uh, in close chronological proximity to when Giovanni di Paolo painted this beautiful Madonna in 1427. So we're looking at a painting that features a Madonna and child. There would have been a centerpiece of an altarpiece, and we'll get to the other bits of it and talk to your colleagues about the other bits of the painting. But the centerpiece, of course, is this great, beautiful Madonna, mm -hmm. a Madonna that's very elaborately dressed, yet set within a garden-like setting. And I guess that would be a representative of the idea of the Madonna of humility, that she would be sitting on the ground. Yeah, I, I, th I think, yes, in some way, it's a conflation of two different iconographies because she looks as she's sitting in the ground, but really she is being elevated to heaven by the seraphims. So the ground is filled with beautiful flowers, but she is really in some way floating in the air, but she's also seated. So it's a conflation of the classic iconography of the Madonna of Humility, so a virgin seated on the ground, but also a queen of heaven. She's represented as a queen of heaven, and that's why she's so elegant and so would this particular de depiction have been requested by the donor? Um, demanded by the donor? Uh, I think, you know, that there, was, there can be a certain freedom in... Uh, I, I'm sure that in the contract that we don't have for this um, altarpiece, it was specified that the central panel would have been a Madonna with child, but perhaps there was a certain freedom in the, how he in some way depicted the Virgin. Tell us about the donor. So the donor, we know, we have some information. We have information that a woman from the Branchini family. That was uh, an important family, a banking that family. That was a rich family, but not a banking family. In 1423, she left some money to build a chapel and to also ornate the chapel with the canonical furnishings, like, for example, a painting, an altarpiece. And Would the cha chapel have been accessible only to that family or to anyone? No, the chapel was on the nave of the Church of Saint Dominic in Siena, and the nave was a huge open nave. So the chapel was privately owned by the family, Branchini family, but was visible to everyone. And he executed the polyptych in uh, 1427. By the, polyptych, you mean a painting of multiple old, panels that would yes, be brought together yes. in an architectural structure of some kind? Yes, uh, that you can see actually on the back of our display. We tried to suggest the original appearance of this polyptych, so an altarpiece composed of several panels. And we um, know that the chapel was dedicated both to St. John the Baptist and St. Christopher, so they were probably depicted in some of the side panels. The paintings are no longer in existence or we don't know their whereabouts uh, right now. So we have the wonderful Madonna, which is signed. Uh, and this is an important sign of the fact of the, you know... Signed by the painter. Signed by the painter. Johannes uh, Senensis, Pauli Filius, Pinksit, so uh, John, son of Paul, uh, Pinksit this in 1427. Uh, and so this is already an important element to, um, to understand that Giovanni was uh, in some way uh, already a self-conscious artist, even if, if he was very young. Let me ask Brian yeah. if you could talk to us about the 
uh, illuminated manuscript pages that we see in the wall next to the painting. Is this an indication of the context within which he made paintings? Is this the earlier Giovanni di Paolo or is this contemporary with the painting? So certainly, as, as we've heard from Davide, Giovanni di Paolo, a decade earlier than the Bronchini Madonna, was commissioned to create a book of hours, a small prayer book for a family uh, in northern Italy. And so he does seem to illuminate throughout his entire career of over 80 years. The works that we've grouped just adjacent to the altarpiece are both associated with Giovanni di Paolo, but also by his predecessors to show that tradition in which he was working, as David has already mentioned, being very aware of Sienese painting. So works by Andrea di Bartolo, or an artist that we call the master of the Osservanza, who some scholars have associated with another painter called Sassetta. So there, is, there are a number of important artists that were working in Siena as panel painters and illuminators. And that's a point to continue to stress that Giovanni di Paolo and these other artists were working in both media. Is there something in one of these illuminated initials or manuscript images that would link to the painting itself of the altarpiece? I mean, is there a stylistic relationship that you can identify? Sure, certainly. In the exhibition, we did display the Getty's small cutting uh, that was owned by John Popenesi, one of the great scholars about Giovanni di Paolo, in fact, the great scholar of Giovanni di Paolo's work. And the figure of God the Father above uh, King David kneeling below does relate directly to a small triptych that we borrowed from LACMA. You can see this use and reuse of figures in Giovanni di Paolo's career. But one of the exciting things also about working on an exhibition like this is two small cuttings that were for a long time associated with Giovanni di Paolo, but then scholars began to think of other attributions. We can in fact look at the figure of St. Michael uh, with the dragon below, and that figure relates on a one-to-one scale with an earlier altarpiece that Giovanni di Paolo created for San Domenico. So in fact, this figure shows up again in reverse in an altarpiece showing Christ as the man of sorrows and also Christ triumphant. So his relationship with San Domenico uh, certainly existed long before this, and we're still rethinking uh, where these pieces fit within Giovanni di Paolo's career. But whereas we have hun- uh, over a hundred pictures by Giovanni di Paolo in American collections, we only have four manuscript pages, and they're all on view in this exhibition. Do you have any sense of how large a studio was and what it meant to have a studio at the time? Did That's a great question. We certainly talk about workshops and studios uh, in the course of the 15th century, and as Davide said, it, is, it can be difficult to parse out. But what we have demonstrated on the wall is the piece by Giovanni di Paolo showing David kneeling before God set within this letter A that has been made up of a dragon breathing fire and spiraling around. Uh, That form was copied by a follower of Giovanni di Paolo called Pellegrino di Mariano, who was working with Giovanni when he was quite old. Giovanni was quite old at this point. And he's borrowed that same fantastic dragon, but used it for a new setting, a new chant for the mass. So here showing uh, the three Marys at the tomb, the angel telling them that Christ has risen. Uh, So you do have this nice bookend of a follower or a pupil reusing the masters. Uh, How would the younger, much younger artist have known of the much older artist's preceding image. I mean, it would have been left the, the workshop at that point and been in the possession of the person who commissioned it or something. So how do they actually see some earlier work like that? Certainly when we talk about workshop, we think about model books, drawings, uh, models that can be passed down. Um, the, choir book, the choir book set that Giovanni di Paolo had worked on was for the nearby Augustinian hermitage in Lecceto, uh, which was accessible and the books may have been housed on the altar um, during the year when they weren't being used. So it's quite possible that Pellegrino di Mariano and others saw Giovanni di Paolo's pictures when they were on the altar in the same way that one would have seen a panel painting in the same context. The, the, the four illuminated uh, initials or manuscript images and so forth, and the paintings that we have in the room by him that we know to be by him, so forth. do you have a sense of development of career in this gallery? 
we do see a little bit of a development, not very much. The pictures uh, by Giovanni di Paolo are from the 1420s, the Bronchini altarpiece and the triptych from LACMA, but the illuminations do show us a broader arc from the early 1420s to the 1440s, but we know that he lives into the 1480s and uh, continues to work in both media uh, across that long career, and his style doesn't evolve very much. We do see some evidence, as we can see in a moment. But, but the style doesn't evolve, that we know that it sort of bounces back and forth between um, inspirations or something, or examples that he drew from. So we have different artists, Gentile di Fabiano, we mentioned him already, the sense that if it's not e evolving from one to the other, it's bouncing back and forth between them. He's certainly responding to a number of influences, so thinking about Duccio, Simone Martini, De Lorenzetti, but also his contemporaries, Ghiberti, uh, Gentiletta, Fabriano, Sassetta, and other painters. And when he's asked by the Pope to commission an altarpiece for the city of Pienza, for Pius II, he's very much aware of the other Sienese painters that are working alongside him. And so I think there is something about having this idiosyncratic or individualized style that would have been a hallmark of Giovanni di Paolo's pictures. When you go to museums today, you know his paintings mm -hmm. because they do stand out and have a certain expressive quality, uh, linearity. Uh, yes, he, he, he's a very idiosyncratic artist, very recognizable, but I would say that the most interesting and in some way experimental phase of his career is really the beginning. Then he becomes a little bit, especially after the 40s, it becomes a little bit repetitive. Well, some the patients probably want some particular because, thing. They yeah, want the look of they, yes, because in some way he set up a language that was uh, loved by the patrons, and so he became a little bit repetitive. But at the beginning of the career, he's really um, extremely experimental and is looking a lot to uh, what is surrounding him. In we can see he's finding he's his voice. To strong, strong artistic stimulations. Let me get Yvonne into the conversation and, and to tell us, Yvonne, about how the exhibition got started because we've got a number of paintings by him here, all of them on loan to us, is that right? Except yes. for, of course, limited manuscript. But. Yes. So we in the Paintings Conservation Department have a long history of bringing great works of art here from other institutions to work on them, either ourselves or with the visiting conservators. Um, and the reward at the end of our work um, is that we then display the works in our galleries, sometimes in special exhibitions like this and sometimes just in the galleries. The altarpiece construction that Davide was describing earlier, um, the Madonna would have sat in the middle of that altarpiece construction as the main, main attraction. And then on either side of her, we think there were standing saints. And then below the saints and the Madonna would have been a long, um, series of scenes, either illustrating the life of Christ or the life of a particular saint. Um, and these um, scenes were often uh, divided, chopped up. Um, when the altarpiece fell out of fashion, the, it would have been taken apart. Um, and the scenes were very easy to cut apart. They would have originally, in this case, been on all, all on one long piece of wood. They were cut apart and then went to different owners. So, so one of those then came from the Kohler-Müller Museum to you to be worked on. Yes, exactly. And as a result of a conversation you had with some scholars, you discovered a relationship that you hadn't known before yes. between this painting and other paintings. So the Kohler-Müller Museum is a museum we have a long history of working with. It's in the eastern part of the Netherlands, a collection known mainly for its 19th and 20th century works, but in fact they do have a small collection of old master paintings as well. And we chose this picture by Giovanni Di Paolo not knowing uh, that scholars in 2010 
um, proposed that it was part of this predella, part of this grand Branchini altarpiece. Did you think that it was just a single pa painting itself, a single panel? At the moment, we, we knew that it was did a predella panel, but we, we didn't know what altarpiece it might come from. Um, and fortuitously, when the painting arrived at the Getty, we had another show devoted to Italian painting on at the time, but it was devoted to much earlier Florentine painting. And we happened to have three of the top American scholars in this field here at the Getty for um, a study day. And I invited them down to the studio to see this picture because I knew they would be interested. And they were pleasantly surprised to see it because they knew about this recently published idea. Um, and that is when we realized, aha, that this is actually much not that it wasn't an interesting project to begin with, but now we really had an interesting project because the main Madonna that we heard Davide describe earlier um, belongs to the Norton Simon Museum, which is across town, and we have a special relationship with them. And we immediately started thinking, oh, wouldn't it be wonderful to, to bring that picture over and bring the three other pictures, surviving parts of the predella, over here from Siena where they're normally housed in the Pinacoteca. What, what was the basis, I think you said, of an article that uh, argued for the arrangement of the predella panels in a certain order and in relationship to the Madonna in the center of the ensemble? Because typically, and I think that this painting in its ensemble was broken up in the 18th century, is that right, or 17th century? Possibly yeah. earlier, yes. Yeah. I think we think so, 17th century. So, yeah. so typically, this would happen in the 20th century, let's say, and you'd have very early photographs, and then, then you'd have the basis in which to piece yes. it together. But this yeah. is pieced together on the basis of what? So, so the scholars pieced this together, the Predella pieces, um, together based on the evidence that we see on the sides of the panels. So we have the scenes, and then dividing the scenes are decorative elements, including flowers. And it is these flowers that are, that are on all of the predella panel, panels, but also then we see the flowers below the Madonna that prompted this mm -hmm. connection, it, it, in addition to stylistic elements, I, I Thing. Yeah, even though, of course, his style changes from panel to panel, it seems, or at least there are differences among the yes. panels. But you can yes. piece it together because you knew he was an artist who painted multiple styles. Right. But you, I think you've told me once before that actually you've been able to determine by some technical analysis that these four panels and the fifth that's missing would have been cut from the same piece of wood. Absolutely. Right? So, How do you know that? So when we actually, we, we, we are very fortunate in that the, our colleagues at the Pinacoteca in Siena gave us permission to uh, do some small amount of analysis on those three pictures before they went on view here. So we had them here about a week early and we were able to x-ray them. And in the x-ray we can see very clearly the wood grain continuing through these panels, which was really, it doesn't get much better than that in terms of confirming their relationship. I mean, in addition to that, there are very specific technical similarities between the works that, that especially when you see them in person, you can um, make these connections. And I'll just use these two as an example. Um, we see the, the red garment of the, the servant over here on the left, which is actually a red, organic red, translucent color painted over silver. And silver, much like the, the gold that we see on the painting, was applied to the painting as in a leaf form. 
um, and the silver has since tarnished. And we see exactly that same technique here in really the same figure um, in the flight into Egypt yeah. done in so, exactly so the first panel you were describing is the subject of the adoration of the Magi. Yes. And then we see the second one being the flight into Egypt, right. uh, in the middle of which these five, although it's only four because one is missing, is the crucifixion. Yes. Um, what would this one have been, the one that's missing? So the missing panel would have been a, a Annunciation or a Nativity, at least that's what we think, but we don't know for sure. Um, but one has to think of the, the storyline being shown here. So we've got the presentation of the Virgin in the temple here. So it seems to be proper or, or smart to think that the next scene would have been a life out of the Virgin's life. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So he's painting in different styles at this time. He's responding to different influences or different sort of aspects of other painters that he's liked and so forth. Is there a reason why in one painting, one subject, he would paint a certain way and another subject another, another way? Or is it just the particular details he was interested in? Well, certainly with the crucifixion, I think we see a harking back to earlier pictures. It, it makes us think of Duccio and earlier painters from the previous century. And so this is the scene because that the, so would have been in the middle in Siena, very traditional for the crucifixion. And the kind of sobriety or the kind yes. of seriousness of it. So it's not in some ways, an inappropriate subject for a decorative painting. Exactly. So very serious and, and a little bit more old-fashioned in his mm -hmm. approach here. And I would say that the presentation of the Virgin in the temple is for sure influenced by a very famous prototype in Siena that was celebrated by Ambrogio Lorenzetti. So again, by another painter of the beginning of the 14th century. Yes. So, mm -hmm. Because the, 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 the weight of the tradition was always very strong in Siena. But then Giovanni adds all these kind of uh, uh, very minute details. Uh, he creates histories and he adds two figures that are much more inspired by another composition by Gentile da Fabriano, so by a contemporary of himself. Mm -hmm. So he, he combines certain suggestions, but at the same time I think he creates a very personal way of narrating the, the stories. And what you're hearing us say is something that curators and conservators often do is try to identify these uh, archetypes or these prototypes. And I think in Siena, as we've already heard, people would have very much recognized those compositions. And that would have been part of the experience, viewing the picture, thinking about the other relationships. And that's what Giovanni is, is also doing for his patrons. He's providing them these references, but adding new details, combining uh, Ambrogio Lorenzetti and Gentile here, thinking about Duccio, and then moving on to the end of the series where he begins to think about his contemporaries. What's really interesting is to look at these two paintings, the presentation and the crucifixion, and realize that we've got the, the ground level down quite low. And then by the time he gets to the adoration of the Magi and the flight into Egypt, he's suddenly tilted the whole composition up a bit. And not only that, but he's really trying to show us a sense of space. We've got the landscape in the background. It's quite a shift from the first two panels. And um, it's possible that somehow at this moment he's seen Gentile da Fabriano's work. Um, it's certainly um, very influenced by this great Strozzi altarpiece um, that was painted a few years earlier than this by, by Gentile. You could even say that it was compelled by his interest in, in 
painting narrative so that you see this yes. kind of parade of figures coming exactly. to the landscape to give you that sense of the, they've come from afar to show their adoration to the child or they're going afar through a landscape yes. off to the flight into Egypt or it may have been that he was drawn to those the particular treatment by someone who was a prior example presented a prior yes. example to that I think it, it is just these uh, uh, exuberant uh, full of fantasy and these wonderful narration that really made the fortune of Giovanni Di Paolo uh, with American collectors uh, at the very end of the 19th century and then for most of the 20th century because you know we have almost as many paintings by Giovanni Di Paolo in America than in Italy and this is telling a lot about the taste for early Italian painting but this particular type of paintings where you know the, the, the narrative is so full of details and full of wonderful, uh, small, Ima very great imagination. Yeah. yeah. Tell us about the predominance of gold in the predella panels as well as in the centerpiece of the altar itself and how the gold is worked and how the contract for the gold would have been written. That is, I understand that a patron would have stipulated a certain amount of gold, not only because they might have wanted that particular gold for the beauty, that it, but also because it cost a lot of money. Yeah. So you wanted to be certain you, you got what you paid for. Well, this and Giovanni no de Palo is painting at a moment in the history of painting in Siena where the profusion of gold in the paintings and a wonderful approach to um, exploiting the gold in the paintings was at its peak. So we see him following this tradition that had started in the earlier century, but here he's really reached the, the sort of peak of exploitation. So not only do we see gold in the background, um, but we see, for example, when we look at the crucifixion, the way he's depicted the angels in, in the background here is by incising into the gold with a pointed implement of some type, drawing into the gold, revealing the red bowl, the red clay preparation underneath, and that is what becomes the, the drawing material, if you will. So it's this subtractive technique. Um, you see the same kind of thinking at work when he's doing the brocaded fabrics, which were done in a technique called scrafito, which means laying down the gold, painting on top of it in one color, and then scratching through to create these beautiful brocaded patterns. And was the red ground that's beneath the gold chosen for its warm color? Yes. If you look back in, in the history of Italian painting, if you go back to the 1200s, the red preparatory layer was not being used at that time, and the gold on those paintings looks a little bit cooler um, and not quite as exciting. And that at a certain point, this idea of putting a color underneath something, so putting a, a red bowl preparatory layer here, not only gives it this color, but it gives it the gold, this nice, almost soft bed in which to, to lie on uh, so that you can burnish the gold and really increase its reflection. But also along with that you also get the int introduction of the green layer under the flesh tones to increase the, the, the transparency and, and, and realistic qualities of the flesh tones. So it's this thinking in, of layers of, of putting one color on top of another. And, and you see Giovanni really exploiting it um, through here. Here, for example, we see this beautiful red translucent color on top of the gold, and the gold is the lights going through that top layer of paint 
and being reflected back out to it. And so you get this jewel-like effect of many of the colors. So the Pratella panels are small in comparison to the altarpiece. They're about two feet by two feet, whereas the altarpiece is maybe three feet by six, something like yeah. that. What is it like for him to go, and does his style change from going from the smaller paintings to the much larger altarpiece? Yes, well that's one of the, the, the things that's interesting right now is to relate the Pradella panel to the main panel, to try and find real clues that link these objects together. And part of the problem is that we're dealing with different scale. But one of the wonderful areas to look at, at on this painting, on the big painting, the Madonna, um, if, if we're bothered by that scale, is to look at the figure of God at the very top, which is more closer in scale to the Bredella panels. And there we can make, start to make some real relationships in terms of how it's being painted. But we can also see other uh, details that directly relate. So we looked at the angels on the crucifixion that are made by scratching into the gold. And here when we look at the heads of the seraphim, they are painted in a similar way. In, in this case, he also added paint on top, so they're slightly more complex, but they're, they definitely echo and relate to the angels on the crucifixion. Tell, tell us about her dress and the depiction of the undergarment or the Prince of Robert beneath the blue robe that's on top. So this is a perfect example of the obsession at the time with these very elaborate brocaded garments. And as I said, Sienese painters at this time had reached sort of a a high point of, of how to depict them in their paintings. And so to get this effect, um, an entire layer of, of gold leaf was put underneath that area, then painted, and then scratched through to reveal some of the, the detail, and then painted again with, with blue. And what we're not seeing in this light, and that even under normal uh, viewing conditions, you don't see this, um, we're not seeing all of the colors the way they looked when they were first painted, because some of the pigments have darkened and some of the pigments have faded. So we're losing a little bit of the original palette um, that we can imagine what it must have been like when we look at the illuminated manuscripts. So the areas on her brocaded area, there's some beautiful detailing um, that looks like it's black, and that is actually brilliant blue. When, when I look at it under the microscope, I can see that it's brilliant blue. When we look at the analysis, we know that that is lapis lazuli, which is, was even more expensive than the gold. It's, it's the material used on the altarpiece that is the most expensive material that would have been included in the original documents. I want you to use this much right. uh, lapis. Yeah. So uh, Brian and Davide and Yvonne, You've put this exhibition together you've, from the technical work that you've done in the conservation laboratories, from the art historical work you've done by bringing other objects together to try to give us a context to, to better understand the achievement of the altarpiece itself. What, what is still to be learned? What do you expect or hope to learn from having brought them together, pictures and, and illuminated manuscripts that are otherwise distributed around the world? What kinds of questions do you still have to ask and you're hoping to find answers for? Well, we're still, of course, hopeful that we might find other parts of the altarpiece because we're missing the saints on the side and we're missing one important Pradella panel. And so those are things that we're working on. There have been scholars who have suggested some possible uh, parts to it, so we'll continue to look at, at those. But honestly, it's, it, it, aside from that, for, for me personally, I find it very moving to bring these objects together that have not been together probably since the middle of the 17th century. They've been long apart 
Um, and when we unpacked the pictures from Siena and they rejoined their, their siblings, if you will, in the studio, it was really a moving uh, moment and it, it's incredible to have such a beautiful uh, assembly of objects here. Uh, Something that Yvonne said, you know, that we can look at manuscripts as a way to give us some insights into what the paintings may have looked like originally. And certainly there have been exhibitions that bring together manuscripts and panel paintings by Giovanni Di Paolo. But the Getty is in a really unique position to do analysis of these works, non-invasive analysis, to help us learn a little bit more about his painting techniques. Uh, but we still, in some of the manuscripts in Siena and the pages on view, you will see these organic glazes or the transparent glazes that Yvonne has been referring to because the books are often closed for the majority of their history. But it's also just like with panel paintings, trying to reconnect these leaves and cuttings with the parent manuscripts or other books from the same moment, but also finding fortuitous relationships with pictures here, even in Los Angeles. The LA County Museum of Art triptych, of course, relates to the same 1420s moment and actually gives us a glimpse into the earlier altarpiece that Giovanni made for the Church of San Domenico. So we really can demonstrate that thinking of a young artist on the eve of his 30th birthday, really thinking about his own place as a painter. So we're thinking a lot about technique and what more we can say about technique and also the development of his career. And to me one of the interests of this exhibition is that uh, in some way we are able to show to our visitors uh, I would say a different aspect of the beginning of the Renaissance because we usually associate the Renaissance with Florence, we usually associate the Renaissance with figures like Masaccio or Beato Angelico, or Ghiberti and Donatello. Uh, and we tend to have a sort of a monolithic image of the Renaissance, which means perspective and uh, um, kind of inspiration to the antique. And, you know, Masaccio in the 15th century was called by a Florentine writer, the painter puro e senza ornato, so pure and without uh, ornamentation. And this is true for Masaccio, but this is not true for many other artists working in other areas of Italy, and especially in Siena, where we have a completely different image of the Renaissance, an image which is opulent, which is extremely ornate, which is uh, uh, in some way the opposite of Masaccio's style. So we can show, I think, that there is no one monolithic Renaissance, but there are many other uh, interpretations of the images in, at, the same, at exactly the same time, because when Giovanni was painting this altarpiece, Masaccio was almost dying in Florence, but he has just uh, completed his major work, the famous Cappella Brancacci in the Carmine. And you cannot see two such different works. So to me, this is the, 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 the fascinating thing of this, the, the fact that there are contemporary expressions that are artistic expressions that are completely different and they pursue different objectives at different scopes. Well, it's a beautiful exhibition, so thank you for the exhibition itself, and thank you for the time this afternoon to talk about it. This is the last episode of the year. We'll be taking a break over the holidays, and we'll be back with new conversations beginning January 4th, 2017, and every other Wednesday thereafter. I've enjoyed sharing these conversations with you over the past six months, and look forward to many more. I invite your feedback on the podcast. You can leave a review on iTunes or send an email to podcasts at getty.edu. Happy New Year.
Our theme music comes from The Dharma at Big Sur, composed by John Adams for the opening of the Walt Disney Concert Hall in Los Angeles in 2003. It is licensed with permission from Hendon Music. Subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, and SoundCloud, or visit getty.edu slash podcasts for more resources. Thanks for listening. Thank you.